We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Michael Osterholm, Regents Professor, McKnight Presidential Endowed Chair in Public Health, the Director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy, Distinguished Teaching Professor in the Division of Environmental Health Sciences, School of Public Health, a professor in the Technological Leadership Institute, College of Science and Engineering, and an adjunct professor in the medical school, all at the University of Minnesota. He is the author of the book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, in which he not only details the most pressing infectious disease threats of our day, but lays out a nine-point strategy on how to address them with preventing a global flu pandemic at the top of the list. Dr. Osterholm is a member of the National Academy of Medicine and the Council of Foreign Relations. In 2005, Dr. Osterholm was appointed to the newly established National Science Advisory Board on Biosecurity. In 2008, he was appointed to the World Economic Forum Working Group on Pandemics. Previously, Dr. Osterholm served for 24 years in various roles at the Minnesota Department of Health, the last 15 as state epidemiologist and chief of the acute disease epidemiology section. While at the MDH, Osterholm and his team were leaders in the area of infectious disease epidemiology. He has led numerous investigations of outbreaks of international importance, including foodborne diseases, the transmission of hepatitis B in healthcare settings, and HIV infection in healthcare workers. In addition, his team conducted numerous studies regarding infectious diseases in the maternal child care settings, vaccine-preventable diseases, Lyme disease, and other emerging infections. They were also among the first to call attention to the changing epidemiology of foodborne diseases. Dr. Osterholm was a principal investigator and director of the NIH-supported Minnesota Center for Excellence for Influenza Research and Surveillance and chaired the executive committee of the Centers of Excellence Influenza Research and Surveillance Network. Dr. Osterholm has been an international leader on the critical concern regarding our preparedness for an influenza pandemic. His invited papers in the journals Foreign Affairs, the New England Journal of Medicine, and Nature detail the threat of an influenza pandemic before the recent pandemic and the steps we must take to better prepare for such events. Dr. Osterholm has also been an international leader on the growing concern regarding the use of biological agents as catastrophic weapons targeting civilian populations. The author of more than 315 papers and abstracts, including 21 book chapters, Dr. Osterholm is a frequently invited guest lecturer on the topic of epidemiology of infectious diseases. He serves on the editorial boards of nine journals. He has also been the recipient of six major research awards from the NIH and the CDC. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you, Ted. It's my honor to be here. Absolutely. You have a tremendous uh, academic pedigree and have done a lot in the, in the world of infectious disease. So we really appreciate your, your expertise in advance. In the past, you've been outspoken about the lack of international preparedness for an influenza pandemic. 
Can you comment on the world's and our country's preparedness for and response to the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I, I think it um, clearly is indicative of where we're at today of just how prepared we are, will be as we move forward. Uh, I think the challenge that many of us have is helping society understand we're just in the very earliest days yet of this pandemic. Uh, we have somewhere between 5 to 7% of the U.S. population has been infected by this virus to date. And it will not slow down its transmission, uh, trying to find others to infect out there until we get to at least 50 to 70 percent of the population. And then only then does it slow down. It doesn't stop transmitting. And so I think that what we're seeing right now here in the United States is an, an indication of what will happen with this virus if we don't do everything we can to contain it. And so I think that's that tells you everything about preparedness. Uh, the fact that we're here today, the fact that we're seeing so many intensive care units in so many states right now that are at max capacity, uh, the death rates going back up, the, God knows the number of cases is going up substantially. Um, that tells you everything about preparedness. How do you view the role of the federal government in responding to a public health threat such as COVID-19? We need a strong uh, federal response that unifies the 50 states and the territories in such a way that while we know that public health is a quote unquote local effort, it's all local, it has to come down from a, a type of uh, playbook that we all can come uh, together around and support. And I think that's been a challenge. You know, Lewis Carroll once said, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. And I feel like some days that's the challenge we have right now. You know, our group uh, at the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota have called repeatedly for leadership on a national testing strategy, a national containment strategy, a national supply chain strategy. Uh, and, and I think, you know, we're still waiting for those uh, kind of that, those leadership positions to actually happen. In your book, Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs, you outline a nine-point strategy on how to address infectious disease threats. Can you tell us about how these can be useful in addressing the COVID-19 pandemic? First of all, you have to understand that, uh, you know, the, the bugs were here before us, they're here now, they're going to be here long after we're gone. And that in the end, they will always win the day. Our job is to outsmart them, is to outplay them, at least in the short term, so that we have some advantage, that our, our intellect takes on what their evolution is all about. And so within the context of that, there are those diseases which will never cause worldwide pandemics, but they will cause serious challenges day after day, like antibiotic resistance. It's a situation where it's not just one bug that's going to get us, but it's a whole number of different infectious agents that are no longer now amenable to the kind of treatment that just two generations ago we were enjoying uh, the early days of the antibiotic era. So we have to deal with that issue without it being a pandemic. The same thing is true with diseases of regional critical importance I talk about in the book, Ebola. Ebola is never going to be a risk to most of the world. But in locations in Africa, it's a huge challenge. Same thing is true with Nipah and Lhasa and diseases that most people probably have never heard of. They pose very significant risk uh, in certain geographic areas. So we have to deal with those. And then we have the issues of what I guess I call the classic public health preventable diseases. Uh, childhood immunizations is a good example. Ted, I mean, I worry desperately uh, that a year from now, we won't be talking about necessarily the number of children who died from COVID-19. In the same way, we're going to be talking about the number of children who die from measles because we've not been able to get childhood immunizations to them. 
in a state like Minnesota right now, we're down almost 34% from where we were a year ago in terms of the number of doses of mumps, measles, and rubella vaccine that were used. We miss these kids. I mean, for the last four to five months, they just haven't been getting vaccinated. And so we have those kinds of diseases. And then, of course, there are those that make the headlines. You know, the situation about uh, what's happening with uh, the pandemic and sure, clearly is a very, very significant challenge. I mean, think about this. Uh, almost 130 days ago, COVID-19 was not even on the radar chart in terms of number of deaths in this country, not in the top 75. Uh, for a number of days in, in late April, early May, it was the number one cause of death in this country. And I am certain we're going to see a, a challenge again, as even though the cases of COVID are occurring primarily in younger aged individuals right now, younger adults, we're going to continue to see the spillover into the older adult population, those with underlying health problems. And just for the last three days, we've been seeing the number of deaths go up. Uh, we were down to below 500 deaths a day uh, just a week ago. Today, we're going to report over 1,200 deaths for the day. So you can see how that's coming back. So each of these challenges in and of themselves different, but they all overlap with one theme, and that is we have taken the power of an infectious agent for granted. And uh, while we have many, many very critical health conditions today that don't relate specifically back to an infectious disease, in the end, it's the infectious diseases that can change the course of the world. Uh, if I had said to you, uh, 10 months ago, that an infectious disease was going to cause a pandemic uh, not seen since 1918, that the economic implications would be widespread and devastating, and that it at the same time we would be seeing uh, the issue with racial challenges and the protests uh, that uh, have not been seen since the 1960s, all wrapped up into one kind of environment, most people wouldn't have believed it. And so I think now the infectious diseases give us uh, a different framework to say, you know, uh, protecting our borders against a foreign invader obviously is very important, but protecting all of us both outside and inside our borders from an infectious disease is also equally critical. That's a great description, Mike. And I really appreciate how you talk about how all these different things are intertwined and particularly around childhood vaccines. We're working really hard try to make sure our pediatric patients are, are being vaccinated because that is a real future public health risk if we don't get that done. And you can say the same thing about some of the deferred health care that's happened during these few months as people haven't sought out the, the routine health screenings that they need that may result in some problems down the line. Mike, as different states and counties have tried to open up, we've seen a patchwork of approaches and diseases surge in different cities. What would your advice be at this point about how to prevent deaths while also sustaining the economy? Well, you know, one of the challenges that we've had from the beginning is it seems like there's this dichotomous answer. It's either basically shut down the economy, destroy it, uh, you know, challenge society as we know it, or let the cases go willy nilly and that we end up having uh, the kind of situation we see now where we're seeing this intense uh, impact on the healthcare system, the number of severe cases, the deaths going back up again. And I have said all along that I believe we have to thread the rope through the needle in the middle, is that uh, what we need to do is learn from our, our colleagues around the world. When your house is on fire, when the forest fire is burning the entire county, one fire truck will not put that out. But when 
you have a situation where through other means where you did literally lock down people from um, having contact with others, which in a sense has been translated into shutting down the economy. And then you get the numbers of cases at a very low level, one to three per hundred thousand, for example. Then you can basically let your foot off the brake a bit and you can start to reopen, titrating the the response so that it's not at all a lockdown or shutdown. But at the same time, you're mindful of what's happening, where it's happening. And I think, you know, a, a good example of how this has worked fairly well to date has been New York. The state of New York has, after having a house on fire, a major crisis in the New York, particularly the New York City metropolitan area, put in place these number of very, very uh, overreaching uh, kind of, of control measures. But now they've been releasing them day by day, week by week, as, and they track the numbers very carefully. And I think that we're trying to achieve here is that balance that says that the goal is to keep all of us from getting infected, if possible, until the time we have a, a vaccine, which we are hopeful for, that we'll have a safe and effective vaccine, not a guarantee. And that rather than have to develop some type of immunity, which whatever that might be through natural infection, can we just hold off for 12, 18 months to get to a vaccine? Then we're not going to be talking about, you know, trying to keep the lid on the virus per se through these mitigation strategies, but through a a wise and effective vaccine strategy. We haven't articulated that well at all. We either were at two miles an hour or two 200 miles an hour in terms of what the public does. And we didn't learn from these other countries that have actually had major challenges, major outbreaks. Look what's happened in Italy. Look what's happened in in China. And while we're not talking about some of the kind of tracing methods and, you know, facial recognition methods that place like China has done, but there are many countries around the world that have relatively successfully brought the numbers down and have been able to assume some normalcy in their lives. We're at ground zero again. We're starting all over again. We have to understand that the contact tracing testing is not going to get us out of this current situation. You know, it's like having the one fire truck for the entire county on fire. Okay. But if we can get the cases back down again, learn from our mistakes, then I think we have the chance to basically, in fact, have the one fire truck be able to contain the brush fires that come up again. Uh, you know, I have raised the issue and over over again, I want schools to start so badly. And the reason for that is not because it's some ideologic decision, but because it will be an indication if we can do that, then the rest of the community is in pretty good shape. And that our kids, which we, God knows, need the educational experience without being put at undue risk, will have accomplished kind of that that outcome that we're hoping for is how to learn to live with this virus, not just die by it. So, you know, I've been asked over and over again what it's going to take to do that. It's going to take starting all over again, learning the lesson we had. We're going to have to really put the clamp on on our distancing issues. Some will say, well, that's never going to happen again. Well, you know, the virus will determine what it's going to do. Then. It's not up to us. We can't make a policy decision. That somehow we win, you lose. The virus will win. So we're up against uh, microbial evolution here. And if we want to see a country that can continue to function at a moderate uh, level of what it did before, we're going to have to get these case numbers way down. And that's not going to happen by chance alone or some willful edict. It's going to have to occur because of us bringing it back down and then slowly releasing the brake 
and, and getting us back into some sense of normalcy. And when you talk about comparing us with some of these other countries, Mike, I think it, some of this gets back to the difference between a nationwide coordinated response and a state-by-state state kind of patchwork response that, that we've had without real federal input about how to, how to approach this. Would you agree with that? I think the, the thing that we really have to understand is that if we're going to be successful with this virus, we have to have a very high level of humility and understand that, uh, you know, we just can't impose our will upon it. Uh, we have to be smart, we have to be strategic, and we have to be unified. So we do need this national leadership that then says, okay, these are the conditions upon which we can expand everyday activity that would then allow us to keep the virus at a low level. Um, I do not think that what the current situation is in many parts of the United States is sustainable. You know, one of the things, Ted, that I, I salute you and others in the healthcare delivery system, you're our frontline heroes. And people are forgetting how many healthcare workers are suffering miserably today. We have over 700 plus healthcare workers who have died in this country uh, from coronavirus infection in the last six months. And while not all of those occurred as a result of an occupational exposure, many did. You know, well, as we continue to flood our, our healthcare facilities with these cases, uh, even with the younger population, we just see the kind of pressure uh, in terms of providing the care safely that's resulting in more healthcare workers getting infected. And so to me, I think the, the real key message is here is that one, we need to have a uniform under national understanding, a goal or objective of what we're trying to do. My goal is very simple, as few in, as infections as possible uh, to get us to a vaccine with the idea that it also means that we don't destroy society, we don't just shut down the economy. But what it's gonna take in the short term to get to that point is gonna be tough. I think the second thing is, is that we have to understand that uh, we're in this for the long haul. For people who think that we're going to have a one and out or a two and out, and then we're done, that's not the case. We're going to be dealing with this for months and months to come. And every time we want to let off on the break, every time we just say, well, I'm tired of this Pand pandemic fatigue set in, I'm just going to go out and do my thing, then we're going to see a resurgence of this. And hopefully we'll learn from that. And, uh, you know, I think the, the, the message I've tried to share from day one, I said this back in March, we will not be blue and red states when this is over with. We'll be COVID colored states. And we're already beginning to see that happen. And what we need to do is hopefully get beyond partisan issues of, you know, does this signal that or does that signal something else? What are the basic messages of public health? Distance, distance, and distance. One of the other things you can do is wearing a face cough covering surely can help potentially reduce the transmission to and from. Uh, simple things like this that we can do. Uh, so I think that's the message we need to get across. Let's just all get together on this one. And by the way, this is not just a U.S. issue. If we ever have cared about a global response, it's now. What this is doing in the Americas, what this is doing in India, uh, countries around the world, this is devastating what's happening right now. And, uh, you know, we have, as a country, prided ourselves on the international public health activities of the past 150 years. Now is the time not to forget that. So while uh, we're surely challenged by our own problems, we also have to remember that there's a large part of the world that's suffering mightily also. Science, science, science. Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? 
Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Absolutely. And earlier you mentioned humility as a necessary approach, and that's not something Americans as a group are known for. And I think um, we're really going to have to take that humble approach or the virus is going to humble us uh, in, in order to get, get control of what's going on. Uh, Mike, I'd like to talk about the safety of certain activities, specifically indoor activities and outdoor activities and how COVID may be spread in aerosols. Can you talk with us about the potential spread in things like airplanes and restaurants or even in indoor political rallies? Well, let me just say across the board, indoor air is a much larger challenge than outdoor air. But what we really have to come back to is the basic understanding that there is an infectious dose. In other words, this is not just tag, one virus and you're it. And our group is actually leading uh, uh, an internationally renowned group of experts uh, in the area of aerobiology, industrial hygiene, uh, respiratory protection, animal model studies with SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, et cetera, trying to actually develop the data supporting what is an infectious dose, which then comes back to, well, it's about the concentration and the time. So if I'm breathing air with high levels of virus in it, the potential time for me to become infected is much shorter than if I'm in an area with much lower levels of virus and now taking much longer time to actually inhale the same number of viruses in, in my incoming air. And so one of the challenges we have right now is giving the public the best information we can so that they can help make their decisions. I worry that with the, the data that clearly supports aerosol transmission, and of course this week, uh, the world is finally, I think, beginning to understand that uh, body of data as so many international experts have come forward stating the importance of this. And what we have to understand is that aerosols uh, versus droplets have been a, a kind of a division that medicine has used for a long time to talk about what it is we inhale or exhale. And it really is a misnomer. Now, the particles that we inhale or exhale are basically a continuum. If I always like to say from BBs to bowling balls and everything in between, there's no bright line that says this is now that. Aerosols are those things that float in the air. If people want a physical description of an aerosol, I tell them, remember the last time you looked at the sunlight peering through the window in your home and you saw that dust floating in the air and you said, oh my, I have a dusty house. That's an aerosol that floats. When you and I talk, we fill a room with aerosol. In terms of other ways to look at that, think about it the next time you're at a department store and you smell the perfume four aisles before you get to it, okay? That's an aerosol. Or smoke when you're walking down the street and someone is smoking, you know, 40 feet in front of you, but it's coming back and drifting into your airspace. You smell it. So what we're talking about is what is the level of virus and droplets, those things that do fall out in a relatively shorter distance versus those that actually are able to fill a room or to travel longer distances. 
And while aerosols contain much less virus, there are many, many more aerosol particles. So we're now just really beginning to understand uh, with this virus just what that risk might be. And uh, clearly, again, I come back to distance, distance, and distance, something you can control more. And then, uh, again, using some kind of respiratory protection. We need to save the N95s for our healthcare workers. We just talked about that and how absolutely critical it is to protect them. A surgical mask, because they're not tight face fitting, are going to provide less protection against inhaling or exhaling an aerosol. And of course, cloth face fittings, even less so than that. But I support cloth face fittings use right now as a way to uh, reduce risk. And that's what it's all about, risk reduction. You know, when we get into our car and buckle our seatbelt, you know, depending on the age of your car, there's a lot of other things that go into that, you know, airbags. Uh, you know, detection systems for potential incoming crashes, the way the body is put together now and how it crushes, things we don't even think about, but they all layer on to help protect us against a serious outcome. We need to do the same here. So one, always take outdoor air over indoor air. Uh, you know, I can't emphasize enough how important it is if you want to get together with family. Uh, I did it Father's Day. I saw my grandkids for the first time in months. And based on the information I had and knew, I gave each of them a 30 second to a minute hug outdoors and then stayed the distance after that. And from everything I know, uh, I felt that was safe relative to both protecting them and them, you know, me protecting myself because it's about dose and time. On the other hand, if you're indoors and you're there for several hours in an indoor bar where everyone's talking somewhat loudly, uh, where the air movements may be minimal, that's a perfect breeding site for super spreading events where we see uh, hundreds of people getting infected in one bar in one night. And so I think that, that what we're trying to do here right now is help people realize air, air, and air. I will go out on a limb here and say from the data that I have seen, from what we have done to really investigate these respiratory pathogens and how they transmit, we have far, far overstated the importance of environmental surfaces. We have made people paranoid of everything they touch. Now, I, I'm also a guy that does a lot of work with foodborne disease, as you noted in the introduction. And uh, so hand washing is very important to me. Do not minimize it. But please don't think that that's what's going to save you from this virus. And you don't have to wipe down every package that comes into your home. Um, you know, that's not the way this is transmitted. It's the air you're breathing. And that's really the important message. Mike, do you mind diving into that idea just a little bit more about the potential for surface transmission? Because it really has evolved our thinking around, around this. Um, so what do we currently know and how are you personally approaching it in, in your own life? What we know is in part from all the previous studies done looking at environmental contamination and surfaces. And, you know, it's amazing how as scientists, we often will be critical of others' data until something we believe, and then we just accept it carte blanche. You know, we just, it's, well, it, surfaces are important. But if you look and find what studies really support that, what are the data that support that that's the way that this is transmitted? And there's an absence of those studies that have been well done that show that to be the case. Second of all, the epidemiology doesn't really fit that kind of picture as we would see, where with the kind of transmission we're seeing right now, you know, one person does not stand in a bar and infect 200 other people by droplets just being close by or by touching surfaces as such where everyone gets infected on that night. That's the aerosols again. And I think so the, the challenge we have is because it's something we can tell people to do. We love to tell people what to do that's easy, that's convenient, that makes sense to them. 
and it makes us feel better and makes them feel better. But also we have an obligation to make sure we're telling them to do those things that actually make a difference. And so again, I come back to hand washing as important for a number of infectious diseases. Don't stop doing it. But at the same time, don't be paranoid about this uh, issue of surfaces. Uh, this group that I just mentioned that I'm working with, there will be data coming out actually looking at animal challenge studies with fomites. Again, supporting the kind of uh, message I'm sending to you right now that this is not a, a primary means, if any, even a measurable means for which transmission of this virus occurs. Right. And you say fomites, Mike, in, in medical speak or epidemiology yeah. speak, that, that surfaces that where you can touch where infectious diseases can be transmitted from one person to another, right? Thanks, Ted. And that's a very important message. Make sure that the public understands what you're talking about. It's anything. It's doorknobs to packages to handles, uh, uh, anything you might touch. That's, that's what we're talking about with the fomite. Right. And Mike, when we were talking about indoor activities and the risk of infection. You talked about um, threshold exposure and what your group is doing around um, studying that risk. Can you explain this idea for us a little bit more about threshold exposure and what we know about how much exposure to, to COVID-19 you need to, to actually become infected if, if we know that at all? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a little premature for me to give you any final results, but this is what the group's working on. And actually, the people who work in an area called aerobiology, basically the biology of what's in the air, uh, as well as industrial hygienists deal with this all the time. And uh, they actually have ways to look at how much of something's contained in a an aerosol of a certain size, how many particles actually are, are, are put out every time I, I talk, every time I cough. And what is contained inside of larger particles, the kind that when I sneeze or cough that then fall closer by. And then when you turn that around and look at the animal model data, you know, what has been done to artificially infect these animals? And I say artificially in the sense it's not a, a sick person or a sick animal breathing into them, but challenge studies where we look at the size of the particle that they inhale, um, how much virus is in that particle, and how can we extrapolate those data data for other diseases, which we've actually done a lot more work on, like influenza, for example. And so we're taking all of that data to try to come up with and say, it's not one virus. Maybe it's not 10. Maybe it's not even a thousand. But let's just say and it's a thousand. Okay, how long does it take you to breathe in a thousand virus particles if you're inhaling five to six liters of air every minute? And how much has to be in the air? And then therefore was my exposure. And it, it's almost like a toxicologic evaluation where you look at, you know, again, dose, uh, you know, how much of the chemical do I have to ingest or breathe in before it's a challenge? And we're doing the same thing here with this, with the idea that we don't want people to be, go into public spaces and think, for example, because I have a cloth face fitting on, I'm not protected. It still is about that reduction, which can maybe be very helpful. But in the end, is it if I'm in a grocery store for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, what if I can find with normal uh, heating and venting cool and cooling uh, systems that the virus is removed in such a way that I can be in there for 30 minutes and not likely get exposed? So we're trying to develop all of that kind of information to give people uh, something they can empower themselves with. Again, I come back. I can't say this enough. Just like the old line in real estate is looking location, location, location. With this one, it's distance, distance, and distance. The farther you're away from people, particularly in outdoor air, where the virus much more readily dissipates, that's the safest place to be. That's a great message, Mike. 
Can you tell us about the current state of vaccine development for COVID-19? Well, one of the things I always find interesting is that people say, when will we have a vaccine for this virus? And my answer is, we already have over 120 of them. The question is, do they work and are they safe? And that's what we're trying to understand right now, uh, not only in this country, but around the world. And in fact, uh, there's been an, some news made in the last uh, a couple of days where a company in India says they're going to have a vaccine out of the market by the middle to the end of August. Well, one of the things we have to be absolutely certain about, number one, is that first and foremost, these vaccines are safe. And what do we mean by safe? Well, safe is kind of one of those terms I always hate to address because it implies complete safety. You know, no challenge whatsoever. Nothing may be completely safe. Water itself isn't completely safe if it goes down the wrong pipe and drown and you drown. Um, so the challenge is, is that, so what is it going to be acceptable to be safe? If, you know, 30% of the population gets a fever, sore arm, that's one measure of safety. If people have other serious threatening issues, uh, you know, their immune systems, et cetera. Those kinds of studies take time that you just can't make those happen. You know, it's not, it's not like the, the wise farmer in my home state of Iowa who decides, uh, he wants to go on vacation the last part of the summer, so he wants to have all of his harvest done by early July. So he plants twice as many acres in April, assuming that he'll get done twice as fast. You know, that doesn't work that way. He's still going to be harvesting in September and October. And uh, I think the same thing is true with these vaccine studies. We have to understand they take time. So uh, I am confident we will have vaccines. We'll make it to the market. How effective they will be, I think, is still a question. We don't understand the immunology of coronavirus infections all that well yet. Uh, we talked earlier about what is durable immunity, how long will it last? Well, if we can even get six to 12 months of immunity, that by itself is a really very positive, I think, thing step going forward. Uh, but what we're all hoping for is a vaccine that's 100% effective, that has no safety concerns whatsoever, and it lasts for a lifetime. And I'll tell you right now, we're not going to get that. So what we're all looking at is what can we get? that will be helpful. If a vaccine only works 75% of the time or 70% of the time, that is still a huge, huge improvement over nothing. Will it work on those who are, have the most serious risk for high, uh, for uh, a serious disease? Uh, what's the challenge there? Will it work in those who have underlying health problems? We know with influenza vaccine, that's been some of our biggest challenges. And so these are all questions that are still gonna be answered uh, ahead with the research we're doing. And I will say right now, I'm quite confident that we will not have a vaccine tested, manufactured and distributed before next year. Um, and so we have got to figure out how to get through this pandemic for the months ahead, knowing that a vaccine is surely a laudable and hopeful long-term goal, but we know hope is not a strategy. We've got to figure out how to get us through as a country till that time. Right. Hope is not a strategy and there's no such thing as a vaccine unicorn. You, they just don't exist that are That's right. completely free of side effects, 100% effective. So you said it well there, Mike. One last question sure. here is um, how are antibody tests coming along and are they at all reliable yet? I worry a lot about the use of serology, uh, which is antibody testing, indication that we ourselves have been exposed to the virus and have some protection. One is we still don't understand what antibody means. And what I mean by that, antibody to this virus, does it protect or not? Uh, you've heard a lot of discussion over the course of the past few days about the loss of neutralizing antibody, what kind of antibody that's very important specifically attack the virus. 
And so we have a lot left to learn there. We know from other coronavirus infections that uh, protection may be somewhat fleeting, that it won't be durable, and we don't know how long. So if you have antibody, what does it mean? But the second thing that's really an important issue is uh, this is a test that op operates much like a rheostat for a light switch, not an on and off switch. And unlike the molecular test, where it's like a lock and key, where you can be really pretty certain if you have a positive, it's really positive. This is one that says, well, how dark is the room or how light is the room? We'll turn it up a little bit, turn it down a little bit. And then we make our decision about where we think the middle point is. And that's where we make our cutoff. And everything above that signal or that level of light is a positive. Everything below that is a negative. And some people have very different views of what is light or not. Well, the same thing is true with this test. And what's happening is that in a very low prevalent population, meaning 5%, well over half of all the positives that come out of the testing uh, answers themselves are all false positives. They're not real. So imagine I came into a population like your practice. I tested everybody and I said, you know, Ted, uh, you got, you know, X people here are positive. Oh, but by the way, I don't know what they mean. And oh, also, by the way, half of them aren't really truly positive, but I don't know which half they are. So the question becomes, well, what is the usefulness of this test? And that's where I worry about it being used on an individual basis. Now, from a population standpoint, as epidemiologists, we can use it because we will bake in that error in every one. So if I test a thousand people today and it's at 3%, I may know that there are people in there that are not really positive, but now... At least I have some sense. Now, if I come back and test that same thousand people six months from now, and it's at 12%, that same error is baked in. And so now I can say, wow, that has been a big increase of 9% and probably is really actively reflecting what's going on in that population. So we can use antibody serology for those kinds of pieces of work, but for on an individual patient basis, yet it's still a crapshoot. The one thing I worry more than anything, and I've heard this happening where institutions, hospitals want to test all the healthcare workers uh, for antibody with the idea that they're now protected and they don't need the same level of PPE or protective equipment. Uh, that absolutely is wrong. You cannot make any assumptions about whether someone is given an N95 and whether they're antibody positive or not. Uh, that would be an absolute uh, malpractice use of this test. And I've heard of that happening and we wanna warn strongly against doing that. Right. I mean, there's actually multiple levels of issue with that. If, if somebody actually does have antibodies, we don't even know what that means, whether that right. truly confer confers immunity and for how long. And then, as you said, with these tests, with their um, lack of accuracy, in most cases, it's not really much better than a coin flip. Yep. And you don't want to have this false sense of security that you have antibodies and so you're protected. And so you go out to the bar or you go into the hospital and use less PPE and put yourself at, at real risk. So that's the message that I'm trying to get out with my Good. patients is that with these antibody tests, we just can't rely on them. And it's not really worth doing at this point. You're right on the mark with that. Keep up that message. It's a very important one. Yep. So we thank need, you. Yeah, we need to amplify that, which is why I have you on, on this podcast. Oh, Mike, I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and behalf of our audience for joining us and taking the time out of your day and sharing your expertise and, and helping us to educate the public. Well, thank you. And thank you for being on the front line of this. I mean, I think that your message is a very important one. Your patients are very lucky to have you. And I would tell any of your patients who end up watching this, listen to you. Okay. You know what you're talking about. <laughs> well, thank you, Mike. I wish you a good day and, and thank, thank you. you again. Take care. Thank you. Bye. 
That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.